Please turn to Exodus chapter 11 this morning. As you turn there, <clears throat> ask you to remember where we left off last week. Pharaoh and Moses are in this heated exchange on the heels of a, of a plague of hail, on the heels of three days of darkness where the Egyptian people sat beneath this heavy cloud, a darkness that could be felt. The, the people over in Goshen, God's people in Israel, enjoyed normal patterns of day and night. Pharaoh called Moses back. He said, okay, okay, you can go and worship your God. Uh, take your wives. You can take your children. Just don't take the animals. And Moses said, well, we can't do that. We'll worship the Lord with the animals that he's given us. Chapter 10 ends with what appeared to be, at first, the end of the conversation. It went like this. Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, you, as you say, I will not see your face again. But then as chapter 11 opens, Moses is still standing there. And so verses 1 through 3 are here not for Moses' sake to have something to say, but for our sake as readers to remember what the Lord has already said, or even perhaps what God is saying to Moses in the moment while he stands there. God says, please remember my previous promises. And he says, this is the moment when I will fulfill it all right before your eyes. We read chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I'll go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Here's God's word. Let's pray for his help. God in heaven, we ask that you would give to your people the ears to hear and the eyes to see what your spirit would say, what your word shows forth. We ask that you would, in your kindness, 
once again wield a sinful crooked stick like me in your hand to point this narrow way to Christ Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What do you call two doctors? A paradox. I got the joke book when I was eight. And that's actually the only joke that I remember from the whole book. And the only reason that I remember the joke is that I stared at it forever and ever, and I couldn't even understand what it meant. I mean, I could see the, the concept of two doctors, a pair of doctors. I, I got that. I just didn't know what the word meant, paradox. And so I stared at that joke. I imagined it, if only I understood that word, then I bet the joke is hilarious. Turns out it's not. It's barely even a little bit clever, is it? And at eight years old, I didn't even have the sense to go and grab a dictionary and look up the word paradox. Paradox, a statement that is seemingly contradictory or opposed to common sense and yet is perhaps true. Like, less is more. Or, do the thing you cannot do. Or, it's a shame or a pity that youth must be wasted on the young. When you come across a paradox in ordinary language, you know what to do with it. You take a little time to expect to think, to wrestle with it, and you know you're going to come away with some better understanding. But I mention this because the Bible is full of them. And if you allow yourself to think through them, to wrestle with them and what seems to be contradictory, a paradox in the Bible will almost always and certainly provide you with a better understanding of the character of God. Here's a couple of examples. God is sovereign over salvation, and yet man is responsible to repent of his sins and come to Christ for salvation. Or, how can a God who is holy and just also be a God who is loving and compassionate. Here's the paradox of Exodus chapter 11. The God of justice reveals His glory through tender mercies. How can a God who is fully just receive honor and glory by extending mercy to the human mind Justice and mercy are opposites. Well, the passage teaches us here to trust this promise keeper, to revere the greater king, and thirdly, to take comfort in the deeper meaning. First, this text summons us to trust the promise keeper. You can't tell exactly how the Lord spoke to Moses in those first three verses, but the message is here for the people of Israel, and it's here for us as, as readers, and it's clear. God says, here's a message of fulfillment before you open your mouth and say one more thing. I'm a God who has made unlikely promises and delivered them in unlikely moments. And here's another unlikely moment, Moses. But remember that my track record of faithfulness to this point is your certainty. That I'm about to finish what I already promised. And so as we stand here on the precipice of this final plague, God takes our minds and turns us back to the burning bush. 
That's the place where God first made these promises to the exiled shepherd named Moses. He's tending his father's sheep on Mount Horeb. For you and I, it's been a number of weeks. For Moses, it's been almost a year. Look at, excuse me, all the way back to the burning bush in 319, God said, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. And nine times to this point, we've seen God stretch out his hand and strike the king of Egypt. But God's people are still waiting for their release. And the real thing for which they so desperately long has not yet been delivered. Chapter 11, verse 1, yet one plague more. I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. It's about to happen. When I deliver this final blow, you won't ask Pharaoh for permission to leave for a few days. He's going to push you out forever. And that hard heart, that hard heart of that powerful king is really putty in my hands. So much so that this king of Egypt, in all his stubbornness, will do precisely what I want him to do. God says, because I have been faithful to strike Pharaoh, I'll remind you of one other thing that I said. Though you live in poverty in Egypt, I will give you the riches of this nation. Again, back to the burning bush. Exodus chapter 3, verse 21. Moses I'll give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go out, they will not go out empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. Because I said it, now is the moment for you to act in faith based on my promise. You see, God is inviting them to trust him, to believe him as the great promise keeper, to do something in their midst that at first seems silly. Verse 2, chapter 11. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. It's a promise and fulfillment. I will strike the Egyptians, and I did. I will give you wealth, just ask them. And verse 3 says, the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. In other words, the stage is set by this promise. And all they must do is, is look upon that promise and turn and believe it and simply ask. And Yahweh will empty the pockets of the Egyptians. He'll empty the bank accounts and the jewelry boxes. You watch as the Egyptians pay you back for 400 years of slavery. One last little matter of fulfillment. As you look back on this promise-keeping God, back at the burning bush, Moses, the man who ran from Egypt at 40 years old, scared for his life, Moses, the man who tended sheep for the next 40 years, stood at 80 years old in front of a burning bush, and he said, God, who am I? that you should send me. And to that Moses, God said, I will be with you. And that's precisely the fulfillment that we just read in verse 3. 
the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. The murderer Moses, the flock-tending shepherd who felt nothing but unworthy, has been accompanied by the hand of God every single step of the way. It's another fulfillment to to say, Moses, you can trust me. I'm a promise-keeping God. Now, if you know the real God of the Bible, then he will not seem distant. He will not seem irrelevant. But for those who do not know the promise-keeping God of the Bible, in fact, his very existence seems not only far away, but irrelevant. God is making himself known to the people of Israel And these words from the mouth of Moses are meant, from the mouth of God to Moses, are meant to give the people a sense of certainty in the midst of the most dominant empire on the face of the earth, in front of the the king who is the mightiest on the face of the earth. Also that God's people and Moses himself will be able to look back and say, you know, God has already fulfilled promises. And so if he says it's going to happen, it is going to happen. How many of you live in that space today? So much of your life is lived in the spot just beyond God's rich promises. And here you sit in the presence and you struggle to believe whether or not those promises are sufficient grounds to trust him again? But you remember, don't you? Interspersed between those promises and where you sit today, you have a track record of his faithfulness. Along the way, moments where the Lord has clearly been evident in faithfulness to you. He's made big promises. For those who feel alone in a desperate place, for those who look at the desert that stands in front of you, God says in Isaiah 41.10, you don't have to fear. I'm with you. I'm your God. I'll strengthen you. I'll uphold you. For those who today feel deeply burdened by your sin and fearful because you haven't done enough, to you, Jesus says, you haven't. And you can't? Matthew 11, why don't you just come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And you take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and I'll give you the rest that you long for. Maybe some of you need to hear these promises again today, for the Lord has stripped you of everything that once gave you confidence, and he has now brought you to the end of yourself, and there he whispers that promise from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you. My power will be made perfect in your weakness. To you who are anxious today that God's mercy will soon run dry, that the storehouse of his kindness to you is just about near empty. He made a promise in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
You see, God spoke these words to Moses in Exodus 11 to stabilize the hearts of his people. But it was also a summons, wasn't it, to to trust this promise keeper. It's not just promises. I mean, like the Hebrew people, you've got along the way multiple reminders of his wonders in your own life, don't you? The God of justice reveals his glory through tender mercies. Trust the promise keeper. Now revere the greater king. Moses never left the throne room. He's still standing there in front of Pharaoh when you come to verse 4, and the tension of their conversation is still present of Pharaoh's anger. Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. On the day you see my face, you will die. And Moses said, you will never see my face again. But before I go, I need you to understand, you don't get to tell Yahweh when he's finished talking. He has one more thing left to say, and that's what's found in verse 4. About midnight, I'll go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who's behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle... There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. And you are meant to feel the weight of the terror of this threat. But because it makes Pharaoh shrug his shoulders, you're meant to also feel the weight of a contrast. Here is... Moses, who's viewed not only by the Israelites, but even by Pharaoh's own subjects as a man of honor and dignity. Over here we have a king who sits on his throne and closes his ears and says, I'm not listening. And so, friends, even as we shudder at this looming agony, this is divine justice. The Bible doesn't tell us these stories to leave you in terror. It speaks to you this way so that you understand the precision of the way God's justice works. This is a punishment fit for the crime. What was it like to bear a son in Goshen in Exodus chapter 2 when a previous Pharaoh issued a death sentence over every male child born to Hebrew women? And God said, I will never forget your thirst for blood. What was it like when another Pharaoh and this Pharaoh crushed God's people under the burden of slavery? When there was a great cry in Egypt, but it wasn't Egyptians. When it was God's children who were weeping. And they're not just beaten. They're murdered. At the whim of their taskmasters. When I was young, I would read this in Sunday school with my Sunday school teacher, and I would go, I'm the second born. It takes just a moment to go, wait a minute. My brother would be dead. My dad would be dead. He's the firstborn in his family. And so there is a sense in this text that we find ourselves sitting in the position of the Egyptians. 
and we wonder, how is this just? And if it's just, then why does it have to trickle all the way through the entire population, all the way down to this slave girl who's sitting at the hand mill? Number one, every Egyptian is implicated in the crime. While God's people cried for 400 years, this population turned their heads and closed their ears in uncaring apathy. Number two, for 400 years they have been gloating over their great God, Pharaoh, who sits on his throne and over all the other gods of the Egyptians. We're the kind of people who serve powerful gods. We're the kind of people who can crush lesser people like these silly Hebrews. Why the firstborn? Because it's a punishment fit for the crime. Less than a year ago, Exodus 4.22, God told Moses, You go tell Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. You let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, I'll kill your firstborn son. And so when you and I are tempted to look at this story from the Egyptian angle, and we imagine this tremendous loss that the Egyptians would feel, you must first look from God's angle. Fathers, mothers, imagine looking out your own window and you see your own son and your own daughter enslaved to this man next door. And as you watch, you see your precious son beaten, you see your sweet daughter shoved to the ground, and your heart grieves while tears pour down the face of your child. Your boy is crying. Your little girl weeps in pain and suffering. That man has kidnapped your little girl, your little boy. How long will it take you to fix the problem? How long will it take you to pursue justice? Would anyone blame you for seeking justice? No, that's the kind of crime that deserves punishment. A crime that demands justice. Exodus 11 says that's what a compassionate father does. When he looks upon his enslaved son who's beaten and abused and murdered, he delivers justice to the very one who has mistreated his son. I don't know if you can see it, but there's two fathers who are pictured in this text. Two kings who are pictured. There's God and there's Pharaoh. And one listens to the threat and he shrugs his shoulders. He willingly puts his own sons at risk for the sake of his own pride. And the other one sees his children and he comes and he hears their weeping and he says, I will rescue you and I will take you home. Verses 7 and 8 are meant to help you see that contrast more succinctly. Every firstborn son in Egypt dies. Not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Egyptians were obsessed with death. They were obsessed with the afterlife. One encyclopedia of 
ancient Egypt says, the Egyptians invested a larger portion of their wealth in the afterlife than any other culture in the history of the world. Have you ever seen or heard of the pyramids of Egypt? They are a testimony to a culture consumed with the afterlife. If you've ever heard of the tomb of King Tut, it's a testimony to a culture consumed with death in the afterlife. Every mummy in just about every museum anywhere on the face of the earth is a testimony to the Egyptians' preoccupation with death in the afterlife. This dog comment is a very deliberate point. The Egyptians worshipped Osiris, who was to them the god of the dead, and his assistant was Anubis. Anubis, they imagined, supervised the embalming process and then carried the dead down into the afterlife. And Anubis is depicted as a dog. You see what God is saying? Not even your silly dog God will bark at my people. There's a distinction. And when I put to death your sons, Pharaoh, your own servants will bow down and they will tell us to get out of the land. And verse 8, that's when we'll leave. Not before that. At the end of verse 8, it says, Moses went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Why? Is Moses just tired of dealing with a stubborn man? No, the Bible tells us that we are, we are approaching a righteous anger. Pharaoh is unmoved even by the death of his own people. This is a king who in pride consistently puts himself above others. Even at the risk of the sons of Egypt, is this the greatest king on the face of the earth? Is this the most powerful man on the planet? And yet he cares nothing for his people. So you see the text is crying out for a, for a greater king, one who cares for his sons and daughters with a genuine love and compassion. The great God of justice reveals his glory through tender mercies. Trust the promised keeper, revere the greater king. Finally, take comfort in the deeper meaning. For nine other strikes, Pharaoh has enjoyed the help of an intercessor, one who would stand between himself and God, to stave off the justice of God. And here, Moses will never serve in that role again. So now when God strikes Pharaoh, there will be no one to stand before Yahweh and say, God, take away the locusts, take away the hail, take away the boils as if to tell you that the breach between God and Pharaoh is complete. Like a man who's standing next to a falling building without so much as an umbrella to shield the weight of the fall, Pharaoh now has nothing to shield him from the justice of God. And 9 and 10 make that point clear. Look at it. The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. The reason Pharaoh will not let the Hebrew people go is to multiply the wonders of God. Wonders. 
the entire story is about God's glory. God's plan to reveal salvation of his people on one hand and then the unshielded execution of justice on the other hand. So that this God of of justice can reveal his glory through tender mercies. Friends, the Egyptians and their king deserved to die because they had sinned against God. The Bible says that's actually the condition of all of mankind. Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. Or Romans 5, sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin. Your sin deserves death, and mine does too. But the question is not, why did God choose to put to death the Egyptians? The real question is, why does God not choose to put to death all of us immediately? And the Bible says the answer is His glory. By leaving some unshielded, without a mediator, God reveals His divine justice. By shielding some through a righteous mediator, He reveals His loving kindness. With a mediator, mankind can be shielded. Without a mediator, mankind is exposed to the justice that sin demands and God's holiness requires. So here's where justice and mercy come together. This is where God's glory meets your comfort. There's a deeper meaning to this Old Testament story. Lesser kings refuse to bend the knee to God. Even when their sins earn death and even at the cost of their sons' lives, But the Bible says that the great king of glory has chosen to bend his own knee. And he does it at the cost of the life of his own son. In order that he might spare the lives of all those sons and daughters that he has adopted. And so as Moses walks out of the court, out of the presence of Pharaoh, he is pointing to a better mediator. The New Testament reveals that the one mediator capable of absorbing God's justice and shielding God's people is Jesus Christ. So we read Romans 8. And there it says, this is how God can be both just and the justifier of his people. And this is the very message which is pictured in the sacrament that we are about to take. A God who has bled on behalf of his people. Let's take comfort in this deeper meeting. The God of justice reveals his glory through tender mercies. And those tender mercies are offered through Christ. Let's pray. Oh God in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for shielding us in Christ, for absorbing the justice that we deserved, and for extending mercy to us. Oh God, we pray that you will feed us on your word and in a moment feed us on this sacrament. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.